Hello everyone, welcome back to the Royville Movie House. We've just stepped out of the theater, all my popcorn is done. So it looks like it's time to review our latest film. This one was a good one from the AFI list. Annie Hall, directed and written by Woody Allen, 1977. Yeah, yeah it was a good one from the list. Would you just let me get through all this? All right, well, should we uh, introduce the individual that saw the movie with us? Do we have to? This is your idea. <laughs> I didn't buy him a ticket. <laughs> Joining us is my son, John. Say hello, John. Hi. <laughs> all right. So John will be... Uh, Putting his two cents worth in when we actually get to the point in the movie where we talk about what Steve just said. All right. Um, Annie Hall was released in 1977. As I said, it was directed by Woody Allen. Actually written by Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman. The cast is... Uh, Woody Allen, starring Woody Allen, as Alvy Singer, Diane Keaton as Annie Hall, Tony Roberts as Rob, Carol Kane as Allison, Paul Simon as Tony Lacey, Shelley Duvall as Pam, Janet Margolin as Robin, Christopher Walken as Dwayne Hall, Colleen Dewhurst as Mom Hall, Helen Ludlum as Granny Hall, Donald Simon... Simington, I really thought I practiced that. I didn't do a very good job. As Dad Hall. Mordecai Laudner as Alvy's dad. Joan Newman as Alvy's mom. The movie won four Oscars. Won four Oscars. Do you know what it won for? Yes. Best Picture. Mm. Best Leading Actress. Well, okay. Which would be Diane Keaton. Oh, right, right. Not Woody Allen. Got it. Best director is Woody Allen. <laughs> now, he might be a fantastic director. Best screenplay for a production directly for the screen. So, not an adaptation. Okay. So, that's all the stuff that we usually put at the beginning of our talks about movies. But, with Annie Hall... I decided to take things a little bit differently than some of the other stuff that we've done in the past. Um, including those movies that starred or were written by or who or, or were directed by people who were problematic. So this is my first time acknowledging the fact that Woody Allen is an extremely problematic figure. Woody Allen himself. And those of you who are too young to remember, who don't follow film history, um, in the 90s it came out that Woody Allen and his longtime girlfriend Mia Farrow broke up because Mia Farrow found naked pictures of her 19-year-old daughter, adopted daughter, Soon Lee, Soon, Soon Yi, sorry, at Woody Allen's apartment. <clears throat> Now, Soon Yi was an adult. However, we have no idea. Nobody has any idea how long the relationship had been going on before that. Because she was only 19. 
So she was an adult almost two years, just a year. Not sure where her birthday falls in that whole cycle. So Mia Farrow divorced, not divorced. Mia Farrow and Woody Allen were never married. They never actually lived together on a permanent basis. They were just dating. But they did adopt two or three children together. So there was a custody battle after they broke up. During the custody battle... That's weird. A little odd, right? Mm. But during the custody battle, Dylan Farrow, Woody... Let's see, Alan and Farrow's daughter accused Alan of molesting her. This was an accusation that was dismissed by uh, a professor of psychology, I believe, or an expert in child psychology, basically stating that her... Revelation sounded coach because it was a video that Mia Farrow released and it's had a lot of starts and stops, but we've since found out that victims of abuse of any sort tend to kind of sound like that at, at times because they're too young to really process what exactly was happening. So did it happen? Did it not happen? Don't know. Dylan Farrow has never, ever, ever faltered in her accusation of her adopted dad. Um, so there's that. That's the big stuff. Um, he casted 16-year-old Mariel Hemingway in his movie Manhattan about a May-December romance. She's 16 years old and the love interest who may or may not, because I've not seen Manhattan, been played by Woody Allen, mm -hmm. was a much older man. And this is a theme that goes through a lot of Woody Allen's early works. So this is kind of a problematic thing. A um, little bit. After the movie came out, he... Um, this part, I, I, I hesitate in saying, but since it's kind of a in a list, I'll leave it in. Uh, he invited her to go with him to Paris when she was 18 years old when the movie finally was released. Him being in his 40s, her being 18. A little icky. Granted, he waited till she was 18, but a little icky. Um, he dated Diane Keaton and then dated Robin Keaton, her sister, and Dory Keaton, the other sister. Again, a little icky, but that's just, that's just. Um, and during the custody battle that he was fighting with Mia Farrow, he actually was quoted as saying losing custody wouldn't be the worst thing that happened to him. <sighs> that's the last bit on mine. All right, well, let's get back to the movie. Well, no, that's okay. I just need to acknowledge the fact that we understand that Woody Allen is a problematic character. We understand why he's a problematic figure. And uh, we need to acknowledge that in order to be able to talk about why a movie like Annie Hall is important to the overall history of cinema. So, there it is. We acknowledged it. I don't like Woody Allen as a person if all of this is true, even if half of it's true, he's he just seems like an icky person. Uh, 
but I don't know him personally. No, I, I no, I'm not going to even excuse. I just he seems like an icky person. I'm not even going down that road. I'm not going to apologize for feeling icky about him. However, we also have to acknowledge why Annie Hall as a movie is important. Uh, he redefined the rom-com with Annie Hall. The picture itself is not so sunny. It's not so funny. It's more, I don't want to say gritty, but it gritty. It's more real life. It's less haha and more you relate to it. Well, we don't, but we'll get to that. Uh, he uses uh, the achronological storytelling technique that a lot of other rom-coms will use in retelling of a relationship when it's a retrospective. And that means? That means the story's not told in a linear fashion. It's not told beginning, middle, end. He's... The main character, Alvi, is looking back on his relationship with Annie Hall. Actually, in fact, all of his relationships. And he's just telling it as it's coming to him in his recollection. So he talked about a situation where they're in the movies toward the end of their relationship, followed up directly by a scene with him and his second wife, followed directly by the situation where he met Annie. So mm-hmm. it's to- just told, it's not told in a linear fashion. It's told in a very Ellen fashion. How about that? So very stream of consciousness, back and forth, all over the place. Correct. Okay. He also utilized breaking the fourth wall quite a bit. Uh, there was a lot of absurdness in the way the story was told, like the subtitles of what they were really thinking when they were having the conversation, etc. A part where there was a cartoon... Where mm-hmm. he was a cartoon with the Wicked Witch or the Witch in... Yeah, the Wicked Snow Witch White. in Snow White. Snow White, okay. Or a spoof of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses and draws upon, or appears to draw upon his personal experiences to write his stories. Uh, he so does... then he's a prick. We'll get to that. <laughs> It's a comment on the film character, not exactly Woody Allen. The um, He actually writes some pretty meaty roles for women. Uh, Annie Hall, although she spoke fast and, and all that, she was a pretty good role for a woman. And up until that point, up until the 70s, pretty much, it was good, fully realized characters for women. It, it was a little harder to come by. So he did do that. Um, And Woody Allen's voice tends to be, when you think of New York, you think of somebody like Woody Allen. I I, know not a prick. You don't have to say it for the third time. (laughs) No, I... (laughs) But that neurotic... When I think of New York, I don't think of Woody Allen, so... No, it's okay. Um, You don't have to, but Woody Allen's a part of that. Like, Mm. when you think back to how the city is portrayed in that movie... New York is pretty much a character. Like, he loves New York, and you can tell. They show the skyline a lot. They're, it's just, well, yeah. 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 He the, does a... The two main places, uh, Los Angeles and New York, are definitely characters in his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Woody Allen's voice is also very fast-paced. The way that he writes his stuff, the way he writes his dialogue, is a very quick pace to it. If you think of... Even though Woody Allen didn't write it, 
one of the movies that you can see Alan's influence in is When Harry Met Sally. Everything, all the dialogue is just, you know, it's rapid fire. And especially in Annie Hall, where Annie talks fast because she's nervously talking to fill the silence. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> anyway, Woody Allen's influence is actually throughout the modern rom-com. When you think of a movie like My Best Friend's Wedding or... High Fidelity. High even. Fidelity. You think of uh, Chasing Amy. Especially those movies that have a really sharp wit. Yeah, I mean, I get the the cultural significance. The, the movie did harken, or not harken back, I guess, because these movies were made after Annie Hall, but I could definitely see where some of those elements were not taken from Annie Hall, but were kind of birthed in Annie Hall. There's definitely, like, he, his voice runs all through modern rom-com. Even the really cheesy, sunny, happy fairy tale ones. Just, there's, fortunate, unfortunate, he's not a good human being, but he wrote some very important pieces. So that needs to be acknowledged. That being acknowledged, do you want a synopsis? I think probably a, synop- a synopsis would probably be about all we would need for this movie since it was kind of stream of consciousness. That's fine. IMDb synopsis, one sentence. Neurotic New York comedian Alvy Singer falls in love with the ditzy Annie Hall. And then they break up and he wonders why. Well, that's not on there, but that's Steve's edition. Right. <laughs> well, and, that's and then they get back together the, again, and then he wonders why they break up later. Right. I mean, that's basically the movie in a nutshell. There are various scenes. If Ellen wants to get into a couple of those, she can. But really, being a rom-com, to me, the, the individual scenes, and, and we've already talked that the flow of the movie is not as a standard, you know, a B C story. So really, going scene to scene doesn't. No, no, we don't express have to. really what the show, the film is about. We don't have to. However, there are three scenes that I just like to mention. Okay. Her driving. She drives like a maniac. She's not from New York. She's from small town Wisconsin and drives like a complete and total maniac and drives the messiest car that Albie's ever been in. I don't know if that sounds familiar or not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) So there's that. Um, And there were some points in that scene where I kind of chuckled a a little bit because it was funny. Parts of it were. Number two, the scene that he's waiting in line with the guy reviewing a movie behind him. And he keeps talking to Annie about this guy being obnoxious. And it just makes me giggle a little bit because the whole time he's being obnoxious because he's being loud enough. The guy probably heard every word. And it just it's it's just one of those he's a hypocrite and just a weasel. I don't know. Alvi, I don't think translates very well to 2020 
okay. I can see that. <clears throat> Third scene was the scene where they're both in therapy at the same time. There's a point in that scene where both therapists ask how many times a week they're having sex. And he said, she says, oh, all the time, three times a week. And he says, hardly ever at all, maybe three times a week. <laughs> so I, there are some points of humor that, that do make me chuckle. But overall, kind of with Steve, Alvy is really not very sympathetic. No, I mean, most of the time while I was watching the film, you know, he's... Why did we break up? I really want her back. I like her a lot. Why did we ever break up? And I just kept thinking, because you were a prick to her every scene we see you in. Like, just an asshole. Frankly, like, this is a very unsympathetic character that we saw. I, throughout the movie, I kind of thought he was... Uh, basically Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye. Whether you like the book or not, he's a very unsympathetic character. And a phony. And a phony, which <laughs> is said in the movie. Um, he's Holden Caulfield if he was put into a high-fidelity situation where he thinks High that... High-fidelity mean the film with John Cusack. Correct, yes. Or the show, whichever you want to go ahead and... Or the book. Or, or the, the book, book. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> put into a high-fidelity situation where he's thinking back to all of his time with these girls. Uh, the one thing that sort really solidified it for me was when him and Annie first met. And they're at her apartment drinking. And they're talking and they're actually having this inner dialogue. And the entire time he's just thinking... Oh my god, I wonder how she'd look naked. I wonder... And she's wondering if she's smart enough for him. Right. Right, yeah. He's very, very unsympathetic towards her. Um, That's the scene... I just want to interject. You can get... I'm sorry. Yeah. That's the scene that we referred to earlier when we were talking about the structure of Annie Hall where there were subtitles. Right. And it's just like... He is a... <laughs> He's a sex-driven man who really could care less about emotions. From what I could gather from all the different scenes with his ex-girlfriends, with Annie. But, it, go ahead. But it does make me think, though, because you say that about Catcher in the Rye, and there's a scene where they are breaking up, and they're splitting basically all of these books they have, and she asks, is Catcher, she gets a copy of <laughs> yeah. Catcher in the Rye, and she's like, is this one yours? He oh, he right. did, okay. Right, and I made so, the... So that, that correlation, maybe it was more than just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. No, I it mean, the book and this movie had two totally different uh, premises. Uh, because, I mean, uh, Holden Caulfield was a teenager, um, who got kicked out of private school. And this guy's a fully grown adult who can't keep it in his pants. But well, that's not exactly true. I, not exactly, but he keeps... This is... He's, a, like I said, he's, he's a very... He's bad at relationships. He's very bad at relationships. And I've... 
personally think he just puts the physical over the emotional. I think more to the fact he puts himself over the other person or even other people because I think the only kind of genuine relationship that he has with anybody is his friend. Oh, and the, even yeah. and even mm. that, yeah, um, Michael Brady, Rob, yeah. Um, the sorry, you reminded me of Michael Brady. It's okay. The, um, the guy who kept calling him Max. Max is a good name for you. Don't yeah. call me Max. <laughs> so I mean, that's the only seems to be the real like kind of relationship he has, and it's with one other character, and he's a male. It's fair. That's fair enough. Uh, he does say that during one of his asides when he's breaking the fourth wall, he does actually say that, you know, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe he's self-sabotaging because he doesn't feel like he's worthy of anybody. He doesn't feel like he's good enough for anything. And so he doesn't want to date anybody who would want to date him. Basically. Right. Um, he does say that. And, you know, that's kind of a crazy way to think about things but that's the way it is but uh getting as an aside um jeff goldblum has a 30 second uh scene in here in a party <laughs> where he's calling his guru because he forgot his mantra and actually this film had a lot of people in it where you're like Hey, it's that person. Exactly. Over and over again. And they were super, super young. It's true. Uh, Christopher Walken had a Christopher Walken weird scene. Uh, right. Even though he was like two, I, I don't know, 12, I don't know. He, he was a very young man. But he was, uh, he has, uh, those of you who know Christopher Walken and love his work, Know that in every single movie that he is in, he has the scene. The scene where he is just over-the-top weird. And because he only had one scene in Andy Hall, he was over-the-top weird. <laughs> but after watching the film, it does make me wonder, though, how these people actually are in in the film, in the real life of the film, how these people actually are. Because... We assume, but it's pretty much, I think, blatantly obvious that the whole film is from Albie's Albie's perspective. So was Chris? Now it's Christopher Walken. We get it, understood. <laughs> but was Christopher Walken really? Was his character really that weird, or was it Albie's interpretation? Oh, certainly. of the memory of what happened. <laughs> oh, certainly. That Dude. also makes me wonder about Paul Simon's character mm -hmm. who was from Los Angeles and Albie has a very bad uh, view of Los Angeles. And so was yeah. Paul Simon's character actually acting like that or was that just Albie's memory with his okay, I'm going to say the term warped memory of those events. To kind of clarify with Christopher Walken, uh, with the scene that we're talking about, he, uh, Woody Allen is talking to him, and uh, Christopher Walken is talking about the urge 
to drive into incoming traffic as he's driving down the road. And then later on... The very next scene. The the brother, Woody, uh, Christopher Walken, is driving Annie and uh, Woody Allen back. To the airport at breakneck speed. <laughs> yeah. right. Actually, I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> that was really funny, but like, just to clarify, like that was that was the walking scene, and it could have been uh, this guy's interpretation of the brother, but it could also just not be in this guy super weird. Who knows? But it does. Yeah, it does really make you wonder how much of this is really the main character's imagination and how much of it isn't well Mm -hmm. i mean you know when when i tell you a story when i get home from work it's definitely told from my perspective ellen was referring and pointing to myself just so you guys know (laughs) (laughs) well it could be john too i tell him stories after i get home from work too oh boy uh but you got to take all that sort of reporting with a grain of salt. It's told from my perspective. And I think that given the the bookends of the movie, the framing device of the movie, with Alvy narrating and talking about a joke and comparing it to life, and then talking about a joke and comparing it to life at the end of the story as well, um, I think it is wholeheartedly implied that when he's telling the story, he's telling it certainly from his perspective and he's trying to spin it. The whole movie is Alvi's spin on this whole relationship and he's not doing a whole lot of introspective self-actualization. He's not, he's not looking inside to see how he can improve and how, where he went wrong. Not at all. What he's trying to do is to blame it on other people. And one of the minor characters that have, that he talks to on the street, in his head, because <laughs> I don't think that Alvy was actually stopping people on New York Street, <laughs> asking them where things went wrong. Yeah. Pulling <laughs> aside an officer on his horse and petting the horse. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's was, there was two scenes like that where he's just narrating... But talking out loud and people who are passing him on the street are answering his questions as he's saying them or he'll stop them and ask them questions. Um, one of the one of the ladies who passes him says something to the effect of you're doing the same thing every time. It's everybody else's fault. It's never your fault. And it's true. But doesn't he just kind of dismiss her? Oh, certainly. But so. it, it is said in the movie. I mean, it well, happens. Well, true, but yeah. but in your, to make your argument valid, yeah. I mean, he basically just dismisses this woman. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's not me. It's something that they're doing wrong. What? How did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Who could have done this? Yeah. Or what could have done this? Or Well, maybe it's because you're a prick. Um. Just to give a little bit of context, we're kind of going all over the place, just like the movie. But Alvi is 40 years old. He's been married twice, both to very smart women. One was doing her doctoral thesis on some political influence in 20th century literature, which he dismissed. And she called him out on reducing her to a racial stereotype, which was kind of cool. And then his second wife was already a doctor and trying to get 
a foothold in the academic world. And he was trying to sabotage it basically by wanting to go in the closet and have sex with her at a very important party. So, and then his second wife leaves him. He meets Annie. The movie takes place. And he's not just retrospecting into his relationship with Annie. He retrospected a little bit into his relationship with Allison, who was his first wife, and Robin, who was his second wife. Just in order to maybe put into context that this is just not isolated behavior for Alvi. This is the same pattern three times over now where the women left him. Right. And we kind of also see the beginnings of that uh, in the beginning of the movie. Uh, he's talking about his early life uh, in grade school and how uh, he had these like urges in the classroom. Yeah, he was uh, young for he was an early bloomer, we'll just say. He was what six years old mm-hmm. was okay, and he kissed a girl in the middle of class. He got chastised for it, and then what? Was six years old or sixth grade? Six years old. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was six years old, and then through like another breaking of the fourth wall, here comes older Albion. He's like, I. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't. I have feelings too. You weren't about to ask me about that. Right. Um, so, it wasn't even just with the wives. You just see the beginnings of this pa- uh, pattern behavior. When he's a six-year-old boy going all the way until he's a four-year-old man. So, in talking about this, I'm beginning to think that maybe Annie Hall is a little bit more deep than I gave it credit for, even after watching it actually twice, admittedly. We watched it twice. <laughs> but um, I'm still not sure that I could watch it a third time. I don't know if I could. This is not a movie that I would stop on if I was slipping through there. However, I do got to give credit once again to Woody Allen's framing of both cities. And really illustrating what he sees, what Alvi sees as the differences between the two. Because it takes place, there's technically three cities in it. Well, two cities in a small town. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but mm. every place that he's in actually is framed very well. You know exactly where you're at. And you know exactly how Albie feels about it. In New York, people are having normal conversations, conversations that are very intellectual. People are walking down the streets with their groceries and they're having normal conversations in normal tones. Sometimes a little pretentious, but that's neither here nor there on that because... We can get into that a little later if you want, but Woody Allen tends to be pretentious, so this is normal for him. Whereas in L.A., you have the Jeff Goldblum's well, talking about their mantras. Yes, well, or two men talking about how somebody gives good meeting. Oh, that guy! That guy gives good meeting. Yeah, I have a meeting with him tomorrow. Yeah, George had a meeting with him. Yeah, you know. everybody. Tony Lacey is the character that Paul Simon plays. He's dropping names. He does it in New York, too, when they first meet him, where he's like, yeah, we're going to go over to this place and we're going to meet Jack and Angelica, meaning Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. So not a name dropping's happening with this character. So obviously he has a very low opinion of him because name droppers don't actually. Yeah. Um, But this party is so 
weird and unreal. Like, this is not a party that anyone, even in 1977, would have walked into. I don't care what kind of money you have. You're not going to have three guys standing around talking about how he gives good meeting. You're not going to have Jeff Goldblum on the phone calling his guru to ask for his mantra. You're not going to have the owner of the house. Well, you might actually have the owner of the house dropping the names of the previous owners in L.A. But Alvy also, he makes himself feel ill to the point that he can't even do the job that he's there to do. And then as soon as they release him from the job, he starts to feel better. <clears throat> they go to this party and Tony Lacey actually, I think genuinely is interested in Annie Hall for a recording. I have a feeling that it, like, Alvy seems to think that it's all about Tony's attraction to Annie and that he's going to take advantage of Annie. And he may have. We don't know what happened after they broke up the final time. But seems how the movie is framed as if it's from Albie's memories and how much of a horn dog we know Albie to be, Albie to be. It could just be that he was once again putting his ideas onto what was happening to other people. Correct. So basically. Annie Hall is not just the story of Annie Hall and Alvy Singer. It's the story of somebody who lives and loves, lives in and loves New York, and someone who wants to spread her wings out and leave New York. Not just not just to LA, but just to explore things. She's very young. Well, not young like we were talking about earlier, but she's in her probably mid twenties, I would guess. They way never really said, yeah, way younger than Alvy. She's also always very insecure with Alvy about whether she's smart enough. You don't think I'm smart enough. She keeps saying that through the whole thing because he keeps suggesting that she take classes and all this stuff. And when she does, then he hates it. Exactly. It's very interesting since he's like, he's very hypocritical, even in himself. He'll, one second, there was literally a scene where one second, He's saying, oh, take these college classes. You'll get to meet new people. You get to meet professors. And then a second later, he's like, college is stupid. <laughs> yeah, why take adult education classes? They're dumb. Yeah, it's... But I think that my dislike of this movie, I'm not saying I like it. Woody Allen's not my cup of tea at all. And I'm not just saying that because of the intro to the show. I'm saying it because I don't get him. Like, his humor doesn't hit me right. And I'm not saying... There there were scenes that I genuinely laughed at. Uh, you know, the, the Christopher Walken thing. I laughed at that. I laughed at a couple of just random jokes. Like the... See, I can't even say it now. I don't even know. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> the one thing, not having experienced any of other any of uh, the other movies Woody Allen worked on, I mean, it was an enjoyable movie, in my mind, for different reasons. In a lot of movies, you see 
today, you are supposed to like the main character to one extent or another. In this one, it is very obvious you're not supposed to. I know I made the connection between Catcher in the Rye and this movie, but it, it feels like I'm supposed to feel sorry for Holden in that book. In this case, I see another, another person acting the same exact way, and I'm supposed to not like him. And I really appreciate a movie that can do that. Okay. I think we know how Steve feels about Alvi, but how does Steve feel about the story? Um, we did watch it twice. Um, we had not recorded for a while, and I wanted a refresher. Watching it the second time, I actually was able to dive a little bit deeper into it. Uh, that's when I did realize, the first time I watched it, I didn't realize that it was basically his memories. Um, so seeing it from that light, it does give me an appreciation for the movie a lot more than I did the first time I saw it. However, like Ellen said, it wasn't my cup of tea. I would not stop and watch this again, probably. I will probably never see it again. Um, I can respect some of the choices in the film. I do believe that the film has some merit. However, it's not a film that I really enjoyed. And if this is kind of the, the idea of the Woody Allen film, this is probably the only one I will ever see. It's just like Ellen said, it's not my cup of tea. I didn't like the main character. I understand the choices that were made for the character and for the other characters as well, I think. I, I understand kind of where Woody Allen was coming from. I just didn't really care so much for the film, not my thing. Fair yeah. enough. And yeah. I do have to say, this is probably going to be on my list of watching only once. I only watched it the first time uh, before this recording, but this is definitely on my list of only watching the movie once. One and done. That's fair enough. I will say that in college, my freshman year, I was in a Woody Allen play called Don't Drink the Water, and it was much more slapsticky and just funny, funny. However, that was way early in his writing career. It was a play that he wrote. It wasn't a screenplay he wrote. So I will say that. Some of the stuff that I've seen, some scenes, whatever, I've seen some stuff that I find funny, but yeah, he's just overall not my cup of tea. And I like good movies. I like deep movies. I like smart movies. It's not anything to do with that. But at the same time, I also don't like to feel as though the movie is talking to me as though I'm an idiot. And there were moments in Annie Hall where I kind of felt that way. Yeah, some of the writing, I just felt like I wasn't smart enough to get what he was saying. Or maybe I wasn't around then, mm -hmm. or at least cognizant then. 77, I guess I was around. I'm an old man. <laughs> but um, I but definitely were... wasn't um, really were... cognizant of everything going on around me at that time. Um, however, uh, just all of... not. Not so much name drop, because he has a character that name drops, but it seems like he was almost, like the writing was like, look, audience, see how smart I am. 
Yeah. He was a very pretentious stuff. writer, a very pretentious character. The only so... And the only character in the whole thing that I didn't find pretentious was Annie Hall. Like, she never really, I mean, she even when she got to be pretentious, she really wasn't. It was more trying to fight him off, because she didn't yeah. want to marry him. Which is him. interesting, because it's from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is pretentious in the film, but Annie Hall. Until she was. And so, that's when she uh, turned him again, down. So many layers in this film that I really don't care for. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, I did like I and this I don't know why it occurred to me, but the whole like nod to uh craziness in California when his friend got in the convertible and put on like basically the radiation suit to drive. <laughs> oh, <yeah. it. laughs> okay, sorry. Oh the one thing that I want to mention that not related to this conversation with the movie there was not a lot of music played in it. It's true. There wasn't really a score. There was, at different points, there were songs, but they were tied to the story. For example, uh, Annie Hall uh, uh, sang at a nightclub. That was like one instance of the song. She sang it. Then she was done with the gig. At another point, they were basically listening to the radio around Christmas, and so the Christmas songs are playing. So, it's very interesting to watch a movie that doesn't even have a soundtrack behind it. Because all you have to listen to is the ambient noise of the area and then the actors. So, it, in my opinion, it does, it like... Was pretty stark, actually. Once you pointed it out, that was all I could hear. Right. <laughs> all you so, could not hear. Correct. So, you kind of... In a way, we're forced to get sucked into the dialogue because there was that nothing distracting from it. That is true. That is very true. Um, so basically, despite the fact that Woody Allen is an icky person, we won't get back into it. Um, fun fact about his son Rowan, who Ro- Ronan, sorry, not Rowan, Ronan, uh, he actually wrote. The New York Times article that very likely started the Me Too movement about Harry Weinstein. So, just a fun fact. But okay, that's the last little thing from my research. I think that now we come to the point where, Steve, does this movie belong on AFI's Top 50? I can understand why it is. So, yes. Just you didn't like it. I didn't care for it. I didn't <laughs> actually understand um, why the film is on the list because it is a lot deeper than I gave it credit for. And it does have a lot of reverberation to other films in cinema after it. John. So... There's a lot of historical background with this uh, movie, and it did help pave the way for the modern rom-com that we know today. Despite all the things that I've pointed out on a more, I guess, literary uh, platform, I don't feel this belongs in a top 50, because there were a lot of points where it felt like uh, Woody Allen was ego-stroking his own work. 
you could see it with the character. You could see it with how he was acting. Honestly, there are other movies that are within the genre of rom-com that I felt should have take this, taken this place. Are within the genre of rom-com, but what created the genre? Yes, that's the thing. This is the overall... I, I'm not going to dis. Well, I'm going to disagree with you, but I'm not going to try to change your mind. <laughs> you can have your own opinion. Yeah, I am going to disagree with you. It is allowed <laughs> for this and one I'm, thing. For only this and, one thing. And like I said, I and I did acknowledge the importance of the movie, but again, I it gets a little much when. Woody Allen is throwing in your face like, I am the greatest writer and most intelligent writer there is. Oh, just you wait. Oh, oh, honey. <laughs> and I bet there are other movies like that. But Number based... one is exactly like but, that. Okay. <laughs> Only having watched this movie in this list, All right. that is what I think. All right, so I believe that... Annie Hall belongs on the list of the top 100 movies, even though I did not enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Because I am a huge fan of rom-coms. So I tend to forgive a lot in the rom-com, in the rom-com genre. I, I did not enjoy this movie as much as I thought I would. There were moments, but overall I did not like the movie. However, given that... This specific movie and this specific structure of storytelling has reverberated throughout an entire genre. This is an important enough movie that it needs to be on this list. All right. And our next one. I've got to take a deep breath because the name of this movie is incredibly long. Our next one is our next bad movie called... The incredibly strange creatures that stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Yeah, that is a very long uh, film title. That's our next one. That might even be longer than the actual film. <laughs> the film was really short and um, I don't think Steve liked it very much. Well, it was a bad movie, so. <laughs> but that's our next uh, release. And after that. We'll make our announcements on what our next two movies are. All right. Well, it looks like they are lighting the lamps on the streets of Royville. So it looks like that is our time for the film Annie Hall. So until next time, everybody have a great night. If you like this, if you want to see Annie Hall and you have any comments, please put them in the comment section. If you would like to listen to more of these, please hit subscribe. We have quite a few, and they're going to be rolling out as we watch films. So, until next time, good night, everyone. Night. Good night.